everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host, and that's B as in boy, I double Z A double R O. And today I have with me my lovely and understanding significant other, Deborah Micus. How are you doing today, Deborah? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And today we'll be interviewing Brendan Raleigh from Village Marketplace in Macon, Georgia. How are you doing today, Brendan? I'm good, Justin. Good morning, both of you. Good morning. And so, Brendan, tell us a little bit about, you know, what your business is and and what you guys do there. I describe this as a specialty food market. Um, I like to get as much local produce as I can, uh, source my meats and dairy from local farmers, uh, and then get a lot of the Georgia-grown, Georgia-made products that, you know, you walk in and you're going to find things you can't walk into the big box grocery stores and find easily. So can someone come into your store and do all of their grocery shopping? Is it in that sense, it's a complete grocery store or it's more specialty items and you kind of have to do that, but still also hit your, you know, the big grocery store there. You'll probably still have to go to the big one. There's, I have a lot of the basics and uh, I actually had this discussion with my wife early on. She would uh, find a recipe and ask if I had, this and X and Y and Z and said, no, the best thing to do here is to come in uh, when after the products come in and see what's fresh, what's local and what and build the meal around there. Right. And what about baked uh, goods? Do you guys have baked goods there? I do have uh, one baker here in town uh, and I'll, I'll get products from him probably every other week, uh, keep them fresh for about two days and then storm in the freezer after that. Okay. And so you just kind of pull them out as you need them type of a thing. Yes. And the customers really enjoy that because it allows me to have a bigger variety of products and not spoil on them. So they'll take it home and they're not, they're not going to eat a whole loaf of bread in a day anyway. So if they have it, they can pull out a couple slices as they need. Right. That's actually what I do. I mean, when there were a bunch of kids in the house that, you know, then you would go right through it. But when, you know, it's just Justin and I here, we, (laughs) it takes us longer to get through a loaf of bread. Absolutely. And there's nothing I dislike more than just watching it go bad or, or having to get rid of something like that. And so, uh, Brenda, tell us how you got to opening up your own store. I mean, what was your, was it, what was your past and, and what led you to being an entrepreneur? Well, I actually, uh, had worked in the recycling industry for 12, 13 years. Uh, and, and it was a small company, local and, a one point they got bought out by a big corporation and uh, I just kind of fell victim to the corporate downsizing. Uh, I went from there working with some friends uh, selling uh, the big green egg. Actually, I was working with some dealers. The the only problem there was I'm in middle Georgia and my territory was in South Carolina and I had two boys at home under six years old. So it just didn't really work out too well. Right. Uh, So not real conducive to the family life. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But uh, so at that point, I wanted flexibility almost as much as anything. I am very fortunate that my wife has a a really good job and handles the basics. So the flexibility has been key. I started working with a a local CSA and we were customers. We were getting products and we were learning all about farmers and and different crops and what's local and started doing a little work with him uh, and ended up going into business with him for a little while. that didn't work out, but it got me into this business and got me wanting to keep going. 
And so from there, I mean, you, you obviously have to find a location or um, do you reside in Macon as well? I mean, is it something that you, ch- you wanted to choose a location that was close to home? I mean, how did you go about figuring out what the best location was? And are, is there markets like what you're doing already in Macon or are you the only one? There are a couple of health food markets that do some crossover items. Uh, there's a couple of these, you know, pop-up markets, uh, uh, three hours a day, maybe one day a week, uh, that some of these local farmers go to. And that's where I get a lot of my produce. Uh, as far as in town, when I had the partner and had the first line of business, we were out of the old, uh, Georgia department of agriculture state farmers market. And it, it was a great location, but it's kind of off the beaten path from where, my customer base is going these days. So I ended up looking in my back door. This village, uh, Ingleside village where my store is now is literally half a mile from where I live. So I kind of fell into it and and it has been the the best thing I did. uh, Best move ever. And so tell us a little bit about that because I want to understand just to sort of give the audience a visual perspective in their head when you said off the beaten path, what is it about your new location that was better than the old location? And where are people going that they now pass by this location? Or is there a destination like a Walmart or something? I know that, you know, as a retail business, some of that stuff matters and having traffic and people driving by matter as well. So sort of. Absolutely. Um, well, Mike, it's an old town, you got downtown. And then as the years have gone by, the, the population has migrated out to the north, uh, northern areas, n- the next county up. And there have been some big shopping centers built that get abandoned and more built and get abandoned. This village I'm in was the first first shopping area outside of downtown uh, built back in the 60s. And it is basically a, a block long, and it's 25 to 30, 35 different storefronts. Uh, and, you know, it's had its ups and downs over the last 60 years. But right now it's on a very good upswing. There's the local hardware store, the local pizza place, you know, a couple uh, salons, the, the local toy store. And the people that come shop here, it's going to cost a little bit more. But you're going to walk in and it, it sounds kind of old fashioned and corny, but the, the store owners know your name and they kind of know what you're looking for and, and want to sit there and talk with you instead of just shuffling you in and out. Yeah, I mean, that sounds so attractive because, I mean, in a world where, I don't know, I mean, just some of these big box stores, it's overwhelming. And it's just, you know, to go in and have a personal relationship and that small town feel, you know, I think we all kind of crave that. I know that even people who live in like Manhattan and stuff, they tend to make their lives smaller, you know, like they don't, their whole life doesn't encompass all of Manhattan. They kind of have their typical grocer that they go to all the time and whatnot and um, I really like the idea of the, you know, kind of more the mom and pop size. I think it's that's a, exactly what it kind of turned into is the the mom and pop where mom is is actually working a full time job somewhere else. So <laughs> I, I tell people, you know, it's it's I had a couple that was working with me. They were great. They got us where we were, but you know, it just didn't make as much sense to have a full time person on staff. Uh, so it, it's me now. And I've told people, you, you might pull up sometimes and you're going to see a little piece of paper in the window that says, hey, I had to run and get the kids. I'll be back in 30 minutes. Or, yeah, had right, real life. Back, had no change. Yeah. They love it. I mean, I, I've not had anybody complain about it. I've actually had them thank me because I'll, I'll pull up and they said, you know, it was, it was great to have five minutes to catch up on emails or call somebody back or just sit here and listen to nothing. 
Right. Have that a little alone time. So how <laughs> physically big is the store? Like how many square feet is the store? I think my entire location is 1,400 square feet. So out on the floor, I probably have 1,200 square feet. You know, it's, it, it's, it's an old building that it has a concrete floor that it tells its own story. It's got 10 different paints all over it, almost <laughs> a built-in camouflage. Uh, the walls are cinder blocked. And uh, a friend of mine suggested, and we built walls out of corrugated metal and two by four so that if I didn't have a whole lot in the store, we could shrink it. And if I needed more space, we could push them back and shrink the storage behind there. Right. Um, Oh, that's interesting. That's how we built the studio. I built it out of two by fours and corrugated metal, (laughs) (laughs) which I didn't realize echoed as quite as much as they do. That was a little bit of an issue, but it seems to work out just fine because we have rubber flooring in the gym slash studio. So it worked out. But, you know, so how do you choose then what products come into your marketplace? I know one of the things you and I have talked about prior to actually recording the podcast was having Deanna Bibbs um, proper pepper pimento cheese uh, in your store. Wow, that was a tongue twister for me this morning. And, um, (laughs) And so, I mean, how do you choose you know, what products you sell and, and what products actually make it on the shelves there? Well, Dina was one of the first people I met and that was at a, uh, state of Georgia, Georgia grown event. And she was probably six months into the business and I, I was not a pimento cheese eater, but she was, she was great to talk to and tried her product and loved it. And since that first day, it has probably been one of my top two or three items in the store period. I mean, people come from far away to get that. Uh, some people come in, they know her. They know the family because she grew up a couple of counties over. Um, beyond that, I've got a couple of core farmers that uh, I get stuff from every week. Uh, and it, it's what is local, what's in the ground right now, and what's in season. Um, I have a couple of meat purveyors that, that are local that have been a huge support to me. Uh, one of them, Rocking Chair Ranch, he's actually in the process of building his own meat processing plant uh here in the county just north of us as of right now any local small farmer getting meat processed has to go a couple hours away just to to deliver the animals and then go back and pick them up so it's going to be a game changer as far as the the markets around here Um, and then beyond that flavor of georgia competition uh sponsored by the university of georgia has been a huge thing because i look at that as my shopping list in march or april when they announce the finalists and winners Yeah. You know, I also, while you were talking about some of the farmers, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I know what it's like trying to, you know, just keep the produce fresh in my own house, you know, and make sure that, you know, you're eating the most ripe thing first and all of that stuff. But it just seems like no matter what I do, there's always ways. So now I'm trying to imagine on a grocery store level or market level, how do you do that? I mean, and how do you factor that in with your costs? Because there's got to be waste, I, you know. How, how do there you guys is, manage it? I, I think it took me a little while to get through my head that I cannot have everything for everybody every time they walk in the door. Uh, so I just, I, I, I try not to have waste at all. <laughs> in fact, that's, that's what we end up eating at the end of the week is whatever needs to go is what we're having for dinner over the weekend. Um, but I don't have a big dumpster out back. I have a standard trash can in here and just kind of, if we get to the Friday and Saturday of the week and I'm closed on Sunday and Monday, then, you know, good customer comes in, I'm going to give them a couple extra things. Just say, Hey, use it up. I, I want it to get used. Uh, but 
I don't order huge, but I think it's enough to have a good selection. And, and I'm, I'm kind of at a crossroads of wanting to have more to appeal to more people in the neighborhood, but not really having the budget to risk having to throw away a bunch of stuff. Right. I mean, it just seems like, like I can't, I go in the grocery store and I just don't know how they do it. I mean, I, I, it just seems like the waste must be huge. And I'm like, how do they factor that into the price? It sounds like you figured out how to manage your inventory. So you don't have very much waste. And For the most part, I, I have about two coolers that I keep going with, with produce. And I mean, I may get six or eight different, different items from the farmers, you know, in however many units each week uh, and just kind of judge it based on what's going this week and, Either I'll order more of it next week or I'll order less. Right. And do you know from week to week what it is you're going to be able to have just based on what's already in the ground so you know what's coming? Or are you kind of like they come in and say this is what we have this week and they tell you? A little bit of both. They'll give me some idea of what's what's going to be coming along over the coming weeks. But one of the things I learned really quick is that the farmers don't know till they get out there and try and pick it. and. You know, I'll get a, a message on a Friday. It's like, hey, let me get your order now. We're going to pick Friday and Saturday because the storms are coming in Sunday and Monday and we won't be able to get in the fields. Um, so it, I've learned an awful lot about farmers. And I also know that I don't ever want to work as hard as a farmer because they, uh, they're nonstop, seven yeah. days a week, 24 hours a day. Yeah, that's a rough. I mean, it's a lifestyle for sure. And I think the people who do it really enjoy it. They're so physical and they enjoy that lifestyle and but it is it's tough stuff that they do for sure highly respectable (laughs) yeah and so i mean do you then price your products i mean do you have to stay competitive with the grocery store or is it you just base it off of the pricing that you need to be profitable i mean that's a whole other game right when you're in retail is how to figure out how to price and then remain competitive right um the produce i really don't look at the grocery stores just because there's not going to be any comparison. I, I I have a deal with the farmers and they set a price that is a good, fair wholesale price. And I do a, a modest markup that's going to keep it pretty close to if you go see them directly at one of these pop-up farmers markets. But the customers do understand that I make it available five days a week, rain or shine. So it, it, there's a little bit of leeway there with the dry goods, the peanut butters, the sauces and jellies. I said, I don't want it to be stuff that you can walk into the big box grocery, which here in Macon is a uh, Kroger and Publix. I, I don't want you to easily find it on the shelves. Now I know there are some products that there are in those markets in smaller amounts and I'll go in and check the pricing on that and try and stay comparable. It, it is interesting to see how one week I could be dead on next week. I could be $2 off and the next week I'm cheap, cheaper than anybody else. Because they change the pricing so much. I I just, I have a product line, I get it. And when I reorder, it's the same until the the vendors change the price. Yeah, and those moving targets are crazy. I mean, the farmers also have to deal with that because as the grocery stores change their pricing, they fluctuate the pricing for the produce on the farms, which is just such a crazy model. I mean, Deborah and I talk a lot about it. It's just, there's constantly a moving target for the farmers because the pricing goes all over the place uh, for them to sell the product. They may pick it this morning and then turn around and sell it this afternoon to a grocery store. But by the time they sell it, the price has gone down 50 cents a pound. 
and you're just absolutely, like, and it can happen that quickly within a few hours. And you know, and that is when we see prices fluctuate in the grocery stores. That's exactly what's happening. And mm-hmm. and so I think it, you know, one of the things that. I love about what you just said is that it doesn't matter. You have your price with the farmer. They get the profit that they need at the wholesale value. You, It's a standard price. You don't have to mess with it. They get their money. Then you have your modest markup. You get your money. And then everyone's whole. You're not hitting a mar- moving target that could all of a sudden cause someone an extreme loss or waste or whatever it is. And so the price is the price. Um, it's a little bit interesting. We just bought, well, it's my stepdaughter, but Deborah's daughter, a car at CarMax, and it's a no-haggle price. Like, this is the price Mm -hmm. you pay. We're not playing around. We're giving you the best deal we can so we can be profitable. You're getting the best deal because you're not having to haggle. So we're putting the best price out there, and you feel comfortable about it. And it's almost, in my opinion, the way it should be done, and it's what you're doing with produce. It's like, this is the price. This is my price. You know, there's no room to haggle that way or worry about price fluctuation or trying to shop a deal or, or do all that. No, this is it. And and everyone remains whole and profitable and you don't need to subsidize anything or or worry about it or, or take away someone's commission if they're a salesperson in the car case. But um but I like the way that you're doing it. I think it's just so I don't know, for the new word of the day, wholesome. It's just it everyone's up front and and the relationship and there's an actual partnership and they're honest with one another and what you're doing and it, and it makes for a better business model i feel like and i feel like it's only a matter of time before that starts becoming more of a common practice amongst markets because yeah. i think the newer markets like you guys that are coming in are going to start to disrupt some of this you know, price fluctuations all over the place. I mean, one day I could go in and buy oranges at the grocery store and they're, you know, Satsumas, which you guys have in Georgia, which I love, but it's four for $5. The next day it's three for $7. And I'm like, how did it change that fast in one day? You know, and there's literally someone running around changing prices in the grocery store, which is a whole other mind boggling thing, but we don't need to do it that way. And I don't even know what that does to the Satsuma orange farmers or, or the grocery store because, you know, are they changing the price because they're trying to get rid of it? Or are they changing the price because all of a sudden there's a huge, um, supply increase and they can change the prices. I mean, you don't know, or supply decrease depending on which way the price goes. So it's this whole like moving target thing. And it just seems like, Hey, you know, as farmers, we need to make, this is how much it costs us to farm it. This is how much profit we need, you know, an overhead to cover everything that we have and also make a little bit of money at the end of the day so we can continue to grow. And then, and then that's the price. And then you as a market is doing exactly what you did. This is my overhead. This is what I got to cost it at. And then this is what the consumer can buy it at if they they want that product. It just seems like such a better model. And I'm simplifying it, obviously, because it's way more complicated than I just explained it. But that sort of gives the audience an idea of how all of this works. And, uh, you know, you you could just major in the price fluctuation of fruits and, and vegetables and meats and milk and all of that stuff. But, um... So on that topic, what is the best sellers that you have at your store? The hands down best seller for me is, is the meats that we have. Uh, 
I have three different vendors I get meats from. Uh, the biggest one is the one I mentioned before, Rocking Chair Ranch. Um, uh, but I would say that is essentially a third of my business. And what's funny is we sit here and talk, and he's he's been a great partner without anything being on paper. Uh, he's supported us tremendously. But the sales that I have here for his products are about a third of his business. So we interact really well and, and work well together. And he can he can send customers here, and, and I'll take care of them just like he was doing it off of the truck he's got. Uh, I'm the only retail location he's got. And so what, what all products does, you know, what is he growing cattle? Is he growing hogs? Like what is he? He's raising cattle. Um, He does all the cattle himself. Uh, He gets some pork from some like-minded farmers that use the same processor down in South Georgia. So, you know, when they take animals to the processor, they're, they're not over, over fattened up and, you know, wondering what else been injected into them. His cattle are probably 75 to 80% the weight of a commercial farmer uh, cattle that goes into the processor. Uh, and are they grass-fed or are they corn-finished? They are grass-fed. Uh-huh. It's great. I can tell the people around here, you can drive up this Highway 42 and you can look over and see the cattle right there and how they're, <laughs> how they're being raised and taken care of. Right. That's, you know, that's one of the things that I think is sounding so attractive about your business. And so I want to highlight it. I don't know if everyone else will feel the same way, but I love how you said how the farmers will contact you and say, Hey, you know, do you want to put your order in? Cause we're going to need to pick today. Cause there's a storm. And I'm like the fact that they're literally picking it for your store and it's going to be delivered to you in a day is amazing. Cause you think of yeah. some of these bigger chains, they go into these big central warehouses. Sometimes it gets aged there in special rooms and then it gets pushed out. And so for you to be getting it literally, you know, picked right off the vine and put it into your store in 24 hours or 48 hours, that's a really impressive, um, you know, we talk a lot about how the longer fruit or vegetables are off the vine, they start losing their nutritional value. And so that's a really big plus. And also hearing about how the cattle's coming literally straight from, you know, the farm that you can see as you drive on the way to the store. I mean, it's just, there's something really... Um, amazing about that. And I think in today's world, people so are wanting to know the story behind their food. And I mean, you even go into restaurants sometimes and they'll tell you, oh, it was grown by XYZ farmer and they're located wherever. And, you know, so it's kind of cool that you have that whole element throughout your entire store. It, it is. And I love it. And I'd love to tell people, you know, I can, if, if somebody has a question that I don't know, I'm not going to make something up on the spot. I, I have that farmer or that producer's phone number in my cell phone and I can call them and check and see. Um, I, I can tell you when a product came in cause I went and got it or I was here when they delivered it. So there's no big warehouses, no trucking lines, all these other things. And it, it, it it's not as good as going directly to the farmer or producer and talking to them, but it's as close as you're going to get. And, and that's the fun part to me is meeting all these people and developing those relationships. Well, you know, we talk a lot. Yeah. You know, Justin and I are part of a group in Georgia about trying to disrupt the system a little bit and to streamline getting the product from the farmer to the end user and really simplifying that. And you guys are already doing it because, you know, we can follow different products and realize that it'll even leave the state and come back into the state or hit, you know, 10 different places before it actually lands in a consumer's hand. And each time it's touching someone, it's adding price to it. And it's you know, longer off the vine or, you know, 
know, decreasing in its nutritional value. So it's really cool to hear that you guys are already doing it. You've, you, you're going directly to them. You've cut out the middlemen. You're, you know, which really benefits everyone along the way, but in particular to the end user. And so that's a Absolutely. great service you're giving your clients. Well, uh, what's neat about that is uh, Little Farm, which is one of the farmers uh, I've used since day one, is part of and helped develop a co-op of several farmers in and around the Macon area. Uh, and they have gone in and they share costs and they actually bought a van, refrigerated van, and share costs to send a bunch of their produce to uh, one of the markets in Atlanta on Sundays. Um, so it gets a greater exposure to all of them. Uh, and they'll work from there, hopefully get into some of the restaurants. Um, but what's, what is really good for me about that, I want them all to do really well because I'm not as much about selling my product because my product's a retail store. It's about these are the products I carry, and they've they've built their brands, and they've built their reputations, and I'm just making it a little bit easier to get into people's hands. Right. So, you know, as you think about a grocery store, you've got the, you know, typical, you know, more fresh products that are the per- the perimeter of the grocery store. And then you've got the middle of the store, which is more processed. So, I mean, considering you have these smaller brands, local brands, that type of thing, what is kind of considered the middle of your store? What are those products? Um... Like, do you have crackers actually, that people make and, you know, that are in a box? Or, you know, do they have shelf life that whereas if you're going to, you know, a Kroger and you're getting a Nabisco, it has a shelf life of forever, you know? So what, I do. I, right, like, what's your what's lot, your product line look like? There's a lot of snacky stuff because, like I said, there's about 25 to 35 stores around here. So I get some of the other store workers that maybe didn't bring lunch. There, there's three restaurants here that are great. Uh, but if they're looking for something quick as a snack, um, you know, that's where the pimento cheese becomes a huge favorite. And then some goat cheeses. I have some sourdough crackers made here in Georgia. Um, I had the breads, you know, people with a toaster and they can grab some of that. So I don't have full on meals made ready, but the center of the store is kind of a quick, you know, a protein bar made with nut butters or the, the sourdough crackers. Uh, and then got to have some, candied pecans as a sweet tooth, you know, just to satisfy that urge too. Right. And so as you're looking for products in your store, do you actually go looking for them or do people kind of come to you and ask to be on your shelf? I get a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to go shopping. Uh, uh, in January, I've been going to the America's Mart uh, up in Atlanta where there's a big one floor is dedicated completely to foods. I'll look at a lot of them, but you know, I'm not looking for something all over the country. There is a, a good contention of Georgia grown products there. So just want to meet those people. Um, like I said, the, the shopping list I make after the uh, flavor of Georgia competition is always fun. Cause then I go out and try and buy one or two of those products and spend the next few weeks sampling them and, uh, and seeing what we like. Uh, but I do have some farmers come in. I have some, some people come in and say, Hey, I make these pickles or I make this uh, bread and I'd like to sell it. And, then we go through the conversation of their licensing and going through the Department of Agriculture and whether they can get a cottage license and go directly to customers or get another license where they can go retail through me. So we do a little bit of education, but more information passing along. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit because I'm, we haven't really talked about it on the podcast. And I and just by you being on the podcast and, and telling people, I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are in this space. We just talked about that are, you know, have a pickle or, a, 
you know, or a bar or whatever, or Flavor of Georgia, what is the difference between the licenses then from your perspective? What do they need to have? um, What license do they need to, for you to sell their product? Uh, well, an e- easy example is the, the little farm who does a lot of the produce for us. They had some daughters who would bake breads and make jams and jellies, you know, something that's not acidic and not really heavily regulated. They could sell those products directly at a farmer's market, but they wouldn't have all the, the, all the packaging I would require, you know, all the ingredients, all the nutrition that would allow me to sell it as a third party since I'm not the one uh, who made it. I, I can't handle the questions as directly and as easily as the maker and the consumer. Um, we have in making in actually in this village, uh, we have just had uh, a certified kitchen open up, which I've seen happen, uh, seen help develop a lot of the products that I buy in Atlanta. Cause there's a couple of big certified kitchens that help people that want to get into the business, uh, help caterers, help food truck people. Um, and they, they bring together the, licensing requirements they bring together packaging companies on options uh they bring together the ability to get food trucks delivered if you're a small business and you can't get there to meet a truck uh sometimes that's as important as anything else yeah it's interesting because um and we do a lot of co-packing and uh, when people go from us um well basically when they're selling directly to the consumer at a farmer's market they don't have to jump through as many hoops. Um, but once right. they come to us and we produce the food, we have to jump through all those hoops. So they're sort of like, okay, what are these costs? And, and why? It's because once we produce the food for you to put in a retail store, you have two different options. One, you're not producing the food directly. And two is that you're now putting it in a retail store. So there's labeling and there's, you know, if it's yes. got meat in it, it's USDA inspections and there's, there's, you know, all these things that start to compile up that, that make a difference. And so it's not like people don't realize that it's not just taking food and going from, you know, A to B and it's an exact, you know, scale up of production. And that's really not how it works because the more you scale up and, and go into retail and things like that, the more additional costs happen because like you said, you got to do labeling and nutritional values and lab testing for shelf life and, and all of these things that now become part of the model that weren't there before, um, which is interesting. The labels are very important. And that's one early on when I was uh, out at the state farmer's market, there were some inspectors that came through and there were a couple dozen eggs that didn't have a a candling date, which is the date they were harvested, cleaned, weighed and, and made ready for retail sale and they just said hey contact your farmer and tell them they got to get all this right and 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 it was great the way they worked with us back then but the labeling and packaging is is so important just for the protection of the customers and once protection of me as well yeah and deborah and i are i judge but deborah and i participate in the flavor georgia now for the last four years and one of the things that always comes up in the conversations with the contestants is labeling for you know, retail, because a lot of them um, start to get, you know, retail and they get the help. But then you have the few that have these great products and they just sort of stick a, a label you, you print on your printer at home onto the package mm-hmm. and it just doesn't work. One, it's not, you've got to be able to sell your product through your label. That's part of it. But the other part is, is, you know, you don't want to have someone walk into your store or your retail location and, 
then an inspector be like, oh, this product can't be on your shelf because it, it will happen, you know? And the part about that is that the product's got to be ready 100% to go to retail. And there's a lot of steps to jump through. And I love Georgia because there's so many resources for people to go to that the state offers to help them with that. It's just the willingness to do it. And so it really is a good support system. Yeah, and I love it. And like what you were talking about with Rocking Chair Ranch, um, I believe that's the the name, is that they're building their own um, arbitoire, for lack of a a better term. I can't, uh, the ability to process their own animals. Because you're right, Deborah and I have looked at this a lot in the state of Georgia. There's just not the ability to process locally. People send stuff all over the United States to process. Uh, and then come back. So I love that the state of Georgia is slowly getting there and farmers are taking it into their own hands or coming together as groups, as you said, to get their own trucks to go out there and do it. And the other part, um, and one of the reasons I you know, reached out to you to, to be on the show is because I love what you're doing as a business and disrupting things. You're taking, like we talked about, the grass-fed beef and, and the local products and we're seeing a shift in while the, the big box stores or the big grocery stores, the Publix and the Kroger's are still doing business. People are turning to models like yours for their, their produce. And they are willing to spend more money on their retail items if they're locally made and locally sourced because they know where it came from. And it's not been yes. sitting on a shelf and they know the person. And we're starting to see a swing back in that direction as as a country in the United States and in, in Europe, they've always sort of done it that way. The chains are less forefront. Um, although they, they've had an explosion in chains recently, but it's less the way it is. And here in the United States, we sort of went, we swung so hard into the chain business that it's only natural now that the elasticity that we would actually snap back. And that's what's actually happening. And, getting better products, knowing that the prices is always the same, you know, and when pricing is always the same, like we talked about the fruits and vegetables, it's easy to, it's easier to budget as a family, you know, it makes life so much easier. And so I love what you're doing there and that people can come there and they get a relationship with you. And so it's just so cool. I think the the other telling part is that you look at the big box stores and they're spending a lot of time and marketing and marketing dollars doing what we're doing they're they're wanting to focus more on hey this is georgia grown or hey this is local and they're they're doing end caps that are all of those products and and and, you know i know that at the end of the day the the producers want to get in a big box store and want to have the the big customer that can take them a long ways but it it's nice to be a part of it and watch it growing like that Right. And I mean, I think the consumer is also going there. I mean, you see it nationally, like you were mentioning about the end caps and the locally sourced. I mean, people are really kind of turning to wanting to buy things local. One, there's um, for allergy reasons. And then two, there's also a part about wanting to support their own economy and to support their neighbors and the surrounding businesses, right? It makes their whole neighborhood, their schools, everything thrive. So, I mean, again, you've got this great model that we're seeing the bigger stores trying to mimic. And so it's kind of cool that you're at the forefront of that and just doing it a hundred percent in your store. I mean, we've even been talking with some of the universities and stuff in the state of Georgia who are really wanting to turn and be a leader in that and say, Hey, we want to be a hundred percent Georgia grown, Georgia produced products for our students. And I think that's incredibly admirable. I mean, when you have a state with a 
the agriculture that exists in the state of Georgia, it's kind of seems a no brainer, but the state really is taking that on. I mean, a lot more than we see in other states and um, really neat that you guys are doing that as well. It is. It's such a huge part of the economy here that uh, it makes sense. And it's happy. To, I'm happy to see that happening. So, Brendan, uh, all that being said, what are the things you like about uh, owning your own marketplace the most? And what are some of the things you dislike the most? Well, uh, the flexibility is, is the greatest part. And I get kind of selfish with that, but I get to go see my kids have awards day or sporting events. And, and it's really up to me. I, I look at it and I try and let the customers know as far and as advanced as possible. Um, but it is a, a mom and pop restaurant or mom and pop store. And I'm just trying to, to work around everything. Um, I love the relationships I get to build with the vendors and the customers. I mean, it, it, it keeps me going when I, when I get thanked from the thanks from the customers when they come in for getting a certain product in form or holding something for them or, or suggesting something that, worked out great for their family that uh that means the world to me and so what are what are some of the things you dislike dislike all the paperwork <laughs> and all the taxes. the taxes i never knew you had to pay on everything <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, you know we, i'll joke around with people that also own their businesses and it's like hey Open your own business, they said. You'll have it all made, you said. Live the dream and make all the money, they said. And I still haven't figured out what they were talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's harder said than, it's easier said than done, for sure. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of moving parts. And you have an inventory. How many SKUs do you have in your store? Oh, I don't I don't even have them skewed out. I just, it's, it's <laughs> items and I just punch them into an Apple Square system and go along like that. I probably have. Two or three hundred different items. Yeah, I mean that's a lot to manage, and so so do you keep inventories and do all of that, or you just keep it a little bit more simple and don't do all of that? I am trying to get better at it, and talking with the lady that does my books, she's encouraging me to get better at it. Um, it is much easier on the dry goods that I buy by the case and, and it comes in and out than it is on the meats and the produce and the dairy that. You know, sometimes I I lose it. Sometimes I bonus it out just so it doesn't get lost. Uh, and that's a little bit more difficult to keep track of. Right. But I'm trying to do on the rest of the items. Yeah. Okay, so a question for you. I mean, we've had quite a few different uh, food entrepreneurs on here who talk about trying to get into grocery stores. And so what advice would you have for all of them in terms of being able to like how to put their best foot forward if they're trying to get into a store? Uh, have all your ducks in a row. Um, I've had some people come in here and, and they have product with them and they're, they'll ask if I have a moment and, and want to describe their whole story. I'll have, I have had some come in that kind of make me feel like they're doing me a favor by walking in the door. Um, there'll be some that have samples of what they're selling and some that don't. Uh, and that's what I know uh, is from my retail standpoint, products move so much better when people get a chance to sample. Um, and it's whether they're trying to sell me to carry their product or whether I'm trying to sell the product to the customers, it's a little bit more expensive than what you're going to find on the shelves in the grocery store. So it's it's worth it to, to sample out some products and let them taste the difference or let me taste the difference. 
Right. And so like when you talk about samples and stuff, so someone comes in, they sample you, you're like, great, sold, whatever, I'll put it on my shelf and we're off to the races. But then in terms of if they want to sample the guests or the clients who come into the store, do you need them to do that? Or is that something that you'll put out a tray with little crackers and their peanut butter on it? Or, you know, how does that work? Is that something you help them with? Or that's something that they kind of need to come manage it for you? It's both. And the product lines that I've sold more of have been inside my store at various times, sampling out their own products and talking to the customers. Um, It goes back to what I was saying about they have established their brands and they have established their followings and and they're trying to let people know where they can get it, which is here. And it, it benefits us all. I mean, they know it inside and out and better than anybody else. So I just want to, you know, give them the, the, stage to to go with that and i can i can see a huge difference in sales of a product line on days when they are in here sampling it out right for sure yeah i mean we definitely i heard from one of my vendors who's in some of these big box stores and and he has been discouraged from going to sell or sample in the stores because they have people to do it so they would rather charge him a fee to cover the cost of the person that they have in store sampling than to have him whose face is literally on the package sampling it. That's so interesting. You'd think they'd want him. Is like that, that person Uncle a- Rhett's just out of curiosity? <laughs> no, it's not. But I've actually been, I've bought a couple of their sauces and rubs and I'm, I'm going to be trying to get in touch with them soon. But no, that's actually a, a jelly company. Okay. Yeah. Oh, is that Wishom? Yep. Yeah. That's him. <laughs> I I can guess there's only I I well I love both their products and we did do Uncle Rutz as a a podcast so one of the first ones and actually one of our most successful ones so far still sitting at top ten episodes and downloading every week it's kind of amazing. Um, no, they've got great products. And I didn't mean but yeah, to interrupt, you, but you, I was just like I get all excited. So <laughs> he wants oh, to know. win. He's like I can guess. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, just on, on that note, so, I mean, do you actually have them then come into your store and do the sampling as well? Because you mentioned that they discourage, um, which doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to go on a tangent here, but it does not make any sense to me why, if you're a grocery store chain or any grocery store in general, why you want, want the person whose heart, love, soul, passion, money is behind the product selling it. I mean, they know the product better than anyone else. And absolutely, and more passionate, you know, and it's kind of funny. We walk into Costco and you see the people sampling food all the time. And a lot of times you just sample the food. You actually don't buy the product. I think it's happened a few times where we've actually bought the product, but the person there selling it, this, you hear the same pitch every time. Oh, it's on sale. It's right here. It's 1499. And that's, that's what you get. And then you know, move on. It's not, you don't hear a story behind it. There's no emotional attachment to it by doing a sampling. Yes, you get the flavor. And if it's good, someone is probably going to buy it, but you don't get that emotional attachment of the person telling their story. Well, sometimes they bring in the people who like, it's a specialty product and they only are selling X number of, you know, how many cases, probably pallets really if you're at Costco, but you know, and they do that. And those people, when they do get into their story and they start telling you the ingredients and, you know, you're kind of like, wow, you know, and it also explains a little bit why maybe it's priced a little bit higher. You know, I I can like the sausage company, remember they had like a jalapeno cheese and whatnot. So 
Well, I tell you, one of the best dreams I had was uh, I had uh, Dina Bibb up here one day and uh, Eric Wisham, and they overlapped in samples, and they were putting their products together and coming up with creations that I may not have and the average customer wouldn't have, and it just they created their own little party, and it was great. That is great. You know, and I think that, you know, I mean, we've talked with her as well about helping her with co-packing and whatnot. And really the, one of the biggest reasons is because when she has to produce her own product, it takes her away from selling. And she knows she's like, this is like, I'm so passionate about what I do and I believe in my product. And, you know, so it's, and really who's a better salesperson, her 100%, no doubt about it, you know? Absolutely. So why discourage that? Exactly. You want the person who, you know, it's their story to be pushing it. So Well, and it's, I think she does such a great job at it. She's one of our top 10 episodes right now sitting as well. And the reason is that she just tells her story so well and, and sells her product so well. And everyone loves it. I mean, Deborah and I, seriously, that pimento cheese, every time we go to Georgia, we stop at Farmview Market on our way from Atlanta to... Uh, Milledgeville and get it, and I don't. I don't think it lasts more than twenty four hours. No, it's dangerous. I had never had it before, and we met her, and so I was like, okay, we got to go get this and try it. And I was just like, that is the most amazing thing. And Justin and I are in Colorado, and so we've gone to the you know King Supers here and bought their version of pimento cheese. It's nothing the same. It is not at all the same. And I was so completely disappointed when I had it here because I'm like, I've been totally spoiled by her product, and I'm like, (laughs) I'm a fan. I've had days where I've sold a a couple container or one one container to a spouse. And the next day, they that spouse will come back in, kind of have a sheepish look on their face, saying, "Yeah, I was supposed to get that for my wife, and I ended up eating the whole thing last <laughs> night." So I had to come back and get another one. <laughs> I understand. I completely understand. It's it's highly addictive. It, it should have a warning label on it. <laughs> I know. It, they should they should make them a two pack, not intended to share. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's a great. But that's idea. what I like about a lot of these products is people will have that moment where they they love it. They will seek it out and they'll devour it when they get it and um it's kind of tough to pin down any regular products in a regular box store that you get that excited about but you gotta you gotta be excited about food too right so i mean in terms of being a food entrepreneur and you know the people who start the businesses are the most passionate and the best at telling their story how do you tell your story how do you get your word out i mean obviously you're in a town so there's a convenience factor for some people but do you do social media do you advertise do you send direct emails like how do you reach out to your clientele well, we do a lot of social media, and I actually kind of bumped that up a little bit. I was uh, the couple that was working with me; they were a little bit better with uh, Instagram, and and I would always do the Facebook. But now I've, I've seen a lot more response when I do Instagram tied to Facebook, and it doubles and triples the the viewership. Um, I we have a regular ad in the the local making magazine, which you know it comes out six times a year, and it kind of lets people know what's going on, and they've gotten more involved in talking about the food scene and, and what's new and, and they're great friends of ours and they're all offices are down the street and they shop in here mm-hmm. one, one to two times a week. So that makes a big difference. We have done uh, a couple TV ads, um, but the best thing we can do is word of mouth. I mean, you get some of these people that I know in the community that are, are well thought of and love to host dinner parties. And after they have one of those dinner parties, you get two or three people come in saying, where is product x that you know she cooked for us the other night because it is the best thing ever and we've got to have it right 
You know, that's interesting because I think that as small businesses, that's your biggest asset is word of mouth. And people do that a lot. Absolutely. And we've, you know, we've seen it a lot ourselves where someone does something and then people want to know, do you have their business cards? Do you have their contact information? How can I get a hold of them to maybe do something myself or talk about pricing? It's the same with a product's really good. People want to know where to get it. And, yes. and back to Deborah's other comment is, you know, something that your store is providing is when people produce local products and it doesn't jump into this mainstream mass production. Um, and when I mean by mass production, I mean like hundreds of thousands of things and they, they sort of shortcut the recipes and it loses some of the flavor profile and things like that. Like Deborah was talking about with the pimento cheese we get here. It's nothing like the actual pimento cheese authentic that we've tried in Georgia. And that's not only Dina Bibbs, uh, pimento cheese, the proper pepper. It's uh, some of the other ones we've tried there. And, you know, they sort of short, short change. And it's the same with the jellies with Wisham, his pepper jellies. And I'm like, there's so much flavor in it and they're so good and they're so authentic that one of the things of shopping locally and doing things like that, especially in Georgia with what we're seeing with the food entrepreneur boom there is, you know, you're getting authentic, good product and there's different flavor profiles for anyone's palate, you know, what they prefer. I mean, although I love both the, the pepper Jack, uh, one, she does pimento cheese with the jalapenos in it and the regular. So I could eat them both oh, yeah. all day long. But it's just, and all of his varieties of pepper uh, jellies, like I, who would have known a pineapple would be so good on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just things like that, that I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this and they're phenomenal. And, you know, I think that's part of it is you're right about the sampling is that being able to combine things and having both of them there in the store and, and being able to sell their product, it's just so appealing. And when people try it, you know, if it's really good, they're out telling people about it. And then people are coming yeah. into your store to buy it or are going to them to buy their products. So it's totally worth going out there and doing the samples. Um, even though it's not massive results at first, cause word of mouth takes a little bit longer than social media to get the word out there. But I think it's an amazing process. Absolutely. And the other part is with the social media, I, I'm the, the strange guy that'll take pictures of our food before we eat it and you know make sure we set down a plate in the right light and, and i'm excited about it and looking forward to it and i'll give a review after it but when a customer comes in the store i want to hear what they're cooking i want to tell them what we've been cooking and get some ideas and exchange like that so on a little bit different track i i wanted to know because i i always find it interesting do you have other you know, dimensions of your business that you would like to expand into or bit other business ideas? Or, I mean, I know you have small children, so sometimes when you're in that situation, you're like, no, I, my plate's pretty full right now, so I like where I am. But do you have different ideas of ways you'd like to expand or pivot? I do, and the boys are getting old enough now where I can have a little bit more flexibility. Um, one of the things that I see a need for, and I, I've had some ideas and, and still need to fine-tune it, is meeting these vendors, uh, meeting these producers and these farmers, you know, a transportation system or some sort of not distribution facility, but a distribution hub maybe would be a great asset to this, the food community. I mean, Macon is literally about as 
center of the state as you can get. So, you know, if I could get stuff from South Georgia here that North Georgia people wanted to get, they'd only have to cover half the distance uh, and East West the same. Uh, um, I don't want to necessarily buy all the products and be owning it and, and working on a distribution network. But if I'm getting products for me anyway, you know, how can I capitalize on other stores kind of like mine that are looking to, to add products without being able to go get it? every week. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's something we've heard too from the food entrepreneurs who are actually producing the different products is a lot of them do their own distribution and, you know, the shipping costs are quite expensive. And so, you know, they they might not even have a pallet of food, you know, so it's even less than less than load, you know, and so they're really um, having this uh, logistical issue of like, how do I spread my product across the straight across the state, but also not, put all of the money that I've made back into shipping. And so it Absolutely. sounds like there's a need there. there there's another store in town that, that does, uh, has some similar products that I do. Um, and he's a friend of ours and we carry the same line of peanut butters and nut butters. And when he gets them, he gets them shipped in one case at a time. And it's probably $10, $11 more a case for the shipping. When I get them, I buy, I get about six or seven cases at a time. I pick them up and I'm also picking up, five different product lines. So my hundred, $150 day of gas and time picking it up is spread across 20 cases or 30 cases of product. Whereas he's doing a dollar a unit. Right. Wait, so you actually go pick up some of the product that's in your store. It's not all delivered to you. Oh no. The majority of it I go get. And so that's where closing on Mondays has been a big thing for me because that's my either drive to Atlanta, drive all over Georgia and get product or uh, rest and relax and sit here and order some stuff. Wow. That's amazing. I, I had no idea that you were going and picking up all of the food. I mean, that's a big undertaking. I mean, cause I know hearing from the other side, people are like, yeah, I want to be in the store, but it's just so far. And you know, some people when making, not that it's so far, I mean, it's a pretty, you know, decent sized community. So it's not like it's completely, you know, out there by itself, but you know, it's right. definitely people are like, well, it's only a couple cases and you know, they kind of have to prioritize based on where their sales are largest. And so, I mean, so do you just have a route that you run every Monday of, and making a circle around various parts of, you know, certain perimeter around making, picking up stuff? Well, pretty much if I'll do Atlanta maybe twice a month uh, and try and hit six, seven different places and reload everything I can there. Uh, this afternoon, actually, I'm headed south and uh, going to reload uh, our pecans and candy pecans and sweet stuff like that. Um, and I actually, gotta, I've got to go meet a farmer to pick up produce from the little farm. But I mean, that's a logistical. I mean, I'm sitting here. I mean, I th I'm thinking back to all the conversations that we've had with these different people who produce, and some of them are in shared kitchens, and it's not like they have a their own production facility where they're doing this, or they do production, you know, once every week or once every month, and then they're out selling the rest of the time. So to try and coordinate that, I'm sure it's just a incredible, you know, <laughs> like puzzle on your calendar. It takes a little work and it does frustrate some customers and they'll come in, you know, week after week looking for product X that I buy maybe twice a year or three times a year. It's, it's like, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to go get that one product just for this one sale for right now. I will get into my loop eventually, but you know, I've got to wait a little while. Um, but that's where I look at. There's, there's gotta be some way to, to put together a, 
like a distribution hub where I can get it all here. I don't ever want to own it, but I want to get compensated for bringing it here. Right. And just curious, do all of the people, um, do you purchase all the product that's in your store or is any of it on like a consignment scenario? Although that seems like a book, like a bookkeeping nightmare if it were consignment. It, it is. I, I want to own everything in here because, you know, if I have a customer comes in and spends two, three, four hundred dollars and I want to bonus them something they were looking at, then I'm going to do it. I don't want to have to go back and justify it. And right. right. Keep track of it there. I, I want to own everything that's in here. Yeah. No, I, I, I respect that model for sure. You know, I mean, that's part of being an entrepreneur is you get to make your own decisions, right? And so you tie your hands Absolutely. a little bit if you're in a consignment. I mean, I guess you don't have as much, you don't have the money all tied up in inventory, but on the other side, you are also tying your hands and probably creating right. a lot more work too in the long run, but. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, as your boys get older, do you see, think that they're going to be more involved in the business? Cause I, I think it would, it's great to pass on the entrepreneurial spirit or are they involved or come into the store at all and, and help with things and they stock are. shelves? Uh, my 10 year old, uh, actually helped me out last summer and we'll have him helping out uh, next summer as well. Uh, his older brother's doing a little bit of work with camps and, and, and different things, but the younger one enjoys it. He, uh, he came up here and I figured he'd kind of help clean up and stock and do things. And he ended up running the register and I became the guy running around cleaning up and stocking things and everything. Uh, it's, it's great cause we'll pay him and you know, show him where the taxes go and show him where putting aside some money goes and, and kind of get a, an understanding of what a, a job is actually about. Yeah, that's great. I I had my kids involved, and uh, one had more interest than the other, and but they would help me figure out payroll and add up the time cards, and you know there was all sorts of stuff that they would help me do, and it's fun. I think yeah. it's good for them to have that exposure and get to see you know the ins and outs of how businesses work, and you know definitely you know I even feel like you know I go back to my days when I was younger and I would work as a waitress or whatnot. It gives you a whole nother respect for all the different. You know, when you've been that person, you've done that job and, you know, it makes it a lot easier to leave that nice tip for them every time. And, you know, for to have respect for the different companies you go in and frequent and all of that. Yeah. Well, I, I think first, I think everybody should work in some sort of service industry at some point in their lives just to have a better appreciation for what goes into it. Uh, and second part of having the boys here kind of puts faces with the little sign I put the window that says, Hey, I've got to go pick up these guys. And uh, they got the school awards or they got to practice. And this is why I'm not here for this 30 minutes or this hour. Uh, and it kind of personalizes it with our customers and, and they, they respect it. And, and they, uh, they have very much appreciate being able to, to let us do that. Yeah. Well, it also humanizes the whole thing, right? I mean, it's a lot of times things kind of become faceless and you definitely have a face with your customers. They not only know you, but they know you have boys and they know you're involved in their lives and right. Like you're, you're kind of letting them into your life. You're not just in their life, but it's, it's a mutual thing. And I think that people definitely enjoy that in today's world. I mean, with so much social media Absolutely. and people are just more distant, there's not as much face to face and to get to be known, um, to really be seen, it, it matters a lot. And, and for you to share that with them too, it's just that enhances that relationship that much more for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we wrap things up here, um, Brendan, is there anything that you want to share with the audience or, or anything that, you know, you think would be important for the audience to know as a, as a food entrepreneur, anything that if you could go back and tell yourself, 
you know, three things that you learn now or know now that you wish you would have known at the beginning, you know, what are they? Well, the biggest thing I've learned in the last year that I wish I had known three or four years ago uh, was the state of Georgia, University of Georgia has a, a small business development center. And for anybody that's trying to get into any business, uh, but they have specialties with food as well, they are an incredible resource. And they are a resource that I did not know existed and really wish I had. had. Um, and it's free to anybody who, who's starting a business or in business and wants to get consulting. I mean, they, they'll help you out with marketing. They'll help you out with personnel. They'll help you out with inventory and management. And it, it's just a great resource. Um, Second thing is the way I want to run this business is honesty. I, I want to know that the customers can come to me, and if they have a question, I can answer it. Great. If I can't, I'll try and find the answer. And if I can't, I'll just tell you I can't. There's there's no sense in kind of making whatever up to make the sale because that will cost you the rest of the time you're in business. Um, and I guess the third thing for me has been – no matter what you're doing, I, I still want to have the family first. Uh, the time to to get away with my wife and boys and, and enjoy what we're doing. Uh, it, it, if we're not taking time to do that, then there's no point in doing this. Right. I mean, especially that last one there. I mean, that's the whole reason you're doing it, right? I mean, we don't just do our businesses because we want to, you know, it's the means to an end, right? It's so that we ultimately have that time together. And uh, so that's that's a really Absolutely. great one for sure. I like all your points. And just just because Deborah and I uh, love Georgia so much and, you know, we show a little bit of bias because we spend so much time in Georgia, but <laughs> there's literally so many food entrepreneurs that have come to us to be on the show from the state of Georgia because what you mentioned, the small business development, the starting a food business class that the University of Georgia does also, and all these resources. And actually, it's funny, Deborah read a thing online that was talking about education and how it's changing and education is slowly moving away from sitting in a classroom and doing a major and actually people starting to go out and seek out the information that they need for that specific thing they're trying to do and it's you know it's less about a whole degree and more about the tidbits of information you need to be successful and you just mentioned it with a small um, business uh, center doing that for small businesses as well as we know the one that they do a food entrepreneur food and beverage entrepreneur class for for people as well I believe I don't are they the same thing I think they a little bit tailored because when we talked to them they were kind of talking about different different like ways of teaching people and some of them are a couple hours and some of them are a couple days so I think they a little bit kind of meet the needs of the entrepreneur themselves. Yeah. And I think it's amazing what they're doing. You know, sure. they're, they, we've talked with them and they are wanting to come on and talk about what it is they do as well, which, you know, Justin's been talking about having kind of a uh, little educational series and stuff. So I think that'll be a really interesting episode um, when he gets that one, when we Absolutely. get them on the yeah. calendar for sure. And so no, I, it, go, I'm sorry, go ahead, Brendan. Yeah. I was just going to say, take advantage of the resources that are out there. And, and part of that is do the research to find the, the resources. And, and I didn't do enough of it. And I kind of wish I could go back and do more. But ever since it's been made available to me, I, I, I use it as much as possible. And so my, I, I sort of skirted around my last question. But just because we were talking about Georgia. So 
um, and we talked about Dina Bibb and we talked about Eric Wisham um, as some of the products you guys carry, but what other Georgia uh, grown, Georgia based uh, products do you guys carry there? Just so we can drop a few names and some love out there for all the people in Georgia. Well, absolutely. Um, like I said, the, the meats are huge for us and rocking chair ranch uh, cattle, uh, Greenway farms and white Oak pastures uh, are our main meat suppliers. Uh, the two farmers that have been with us for a while that are every week are the Little Farm and Vesterfield Farms. Uh, we get eggs, we get produce, uh, we get dairy from uh, Southern Swiss Dairy up near Augusta. Uh, and when I mentioned the, the in-store sampling, there's no one better at it uh, than Ginger Butts at uh, Back to the Basics 101. She She's awesome. A, I really enjoy her company. You can't help but get excited about her food when you're around her. And and she 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 calls me at least once a month, oftentimes more than that, saying, hey, can I send some samples up here for you to sample out? Or, hey, can I come up there and, and just meet people, uh, talk to them about it? Um, Andy Biron, she brings in carafes of hot teas on a, you know once or twice a month uh, for people to sample out and, and sell the Biron teas. Uh, it's just it is a great support system. And, and I go back to saying I enjoy doing business with these people and, and I hope they can say the same about me. Um, it's fun to me and, and I enjoy going to work every day because of them. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's amazing that there's just so much support and you guys all support each other down there. It's a beautiful thing that goes on. And, and even back to the Dina Bibb and Eric Wisham, I mean the willingness to work with each other. You know, and, and while it, the, people are competitive in a sense and competition for shelf space, the, it's a healthy competition because they know they all need each other to build that Georgia grown and that Georgia product line to expand not only within Georgia, but outside of Georgia to sort of push back on the products that are coming, you know, or mass produced or coming into their, into Georgia or in the United States and onto other shelves. They know they need to stick together to push and build the Georgia grown product line. So I think it's so amazing. And I love what you're doing in you're being a person, you know, that as an entrepreneur, that is taking their products and bringing it into retail and representing them and representing Georgia products and, and produce and, and, and animals and things like that, that it's just so important um, for everyone. And I think it's ultimately the consumers are the ones who are going to benefit. They just, they don't know how much yet. Well, it's fun to do. And, and you're talking about spreading the, the word around. It's funny that you mentioned that because today there's a golf tournament going on in a, Scottsdale, Arizona. It's an old classmate of mine from high school. It's a charity tournament in honor of his daughter, who is a cancer survivor. And uh, we talked early on when we first started doing it and, and, and talked about a donation. And I sent him a, a gift basket of Georgia-made products and Peach State products. And it's been such a big hit that I saw the list this year that some of the Arizona people said, hey, we got stuff here too so they put together a basket of products and, and some florida people put together a basket of products and it's it's kind of creating a competition at a silent auction that's, oh, charity that's awesome. tournament. so that that's fun to see the flavors spread around like that well uh we have really enjoyed having you on the show brendan and i look forward to oh, having you back on the show if, you, if you're willing to in about eight to ten months to, to continue to tell your story and 
and maybe even get your son on the show with you to tell about his experience running the cash register. I think that would be a, a great, interesting twist. It's totally up to you guys, obviously. But I think it'd be interesting to see that twist of what the next generation is seeing and how they're learning as entrepreneurs. Because, you know, something we see on this show, um, and I would say it's probably about 80% of the time, um, is that it's so important that we as entrepreneurs pass on that entrepreneurial education to to our kids because they're not getting it in school. You know, it's yes. something they can't get in school. They don't. They, we don't even teach them how to balance a checkbook anymore in school, which blows my mind. But it's, or um, yeah, you know, just some of the skills that you need or work ethic or things like that that they can only learn by, by being with their parents or a family member or the opportunity for a mentor to take them under their wing, and, and that's an entrepreneur. You know, just working at a McDonald's or whatever doesn't give them that same experience. So... Um, you know, I think it's great what you're doing. So I'd love to do that if you'd be willing to. I would love to. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I, think I told you before, I was a little apprehensive about doing this before because I was thinking I'm not really producing anything. But uh, I, it, it, it does feel good to be you know, asked to do something like this and be a part of the community. It, it's really why I get up and do this every day. Yeah, and I actually thought about this a little bit, and I'm and I'm glad you brought it back up because I almost forgot. Is that you're actually producing dreams? You know, you're giving people these dreams in a way for them to put their products on the shelves and have someone buy it. And so I think that from an entrepreneur and, and a food entrepreneur, that in the sense that you're doing it, you're actually producing dreams. And wow. so well, we built the stage. <laughs> Thank you. Giving them place like to be out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and so uh, the audience, if you guys like what we're doing, please share the episode. You know, make your way to make into the Village Marketplace. It's a way you can try all sorts of different Georgia-grown, uh, Georgia-based products that we've had on these uh, on this podcast. You can go try it there all in one place. You know, buy it up. I Again, the pimento cheese is just incredible, and the jellies and the Barone teas, for sure, they've all been there. Uncle Rhett's we talked a little bit about. I mean, they're all amazing products and, and why we have them on the show. So make your way to Macon and try it out. Again, please share the episode and thank you everyone for listening in. Um, and just before we go, I forgot to do this and I'm sorry, Brennan, how do people find you on social media and what's your website? And could you give the address of your store? Yes, uh, we're located in uh, Ingleside Village in Macon. The address is 2381 Ingleside Avenue. Uh, our website is www.villagemarketplacemacon.com. And all our social social media is Village Marketplace Macon, Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. And I'll post it in the episode notes as well, just so everyone uh, has it. And if you want to reach out to Deborah and I, you can reach us at justin at thefoodentrepreneurs.com. Uh, that's our email address. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Justin and the Food Entrepreneurs. Uh, feel free to direct message us if you have questions about the show. Or if you want to be on the show, please reach out. And thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Bye.